Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. So whether you're turning there or scrolling there on your device, I do hope that you have the Word of God with you as we'll be looking at a handful of verses today, a handful of passages as we go through our study today. Uh, I'm just so thankful for you being here today, but I'm so thankful for the love of Christ in our lives. And so we're going to talk. Amazingly, God just kind of orchestrated this whole uh, morning to emphasize that aspect of his character and his attributes. And so we're going to spend some time on that this morning as well. Uh, But I do want to take just a moment and uh, just share that uh, I heard this morning that uh, Matthew Osborne uh, is, this is his last Sunday with us today. He's going to be going down to U of M and uh, in Ann Arbor and starting his college career. And so Matt has served uh, in our sound ministry for a couple years now and just so appreciate uh, him and the, how red his face is getting right now is great. Uh, you can't really see him if you're sitting there because he's behind the wall sitting down. So, uh, but I'm just thankful for Matt and I just keep praying for him as God continues to open doors as he goes to one of the best schools in the country, uh, University of Michigan. And so, yeah, the Buckeye fans give a thumbs down. It's fine. Um, and so, no, we're thankful for him. So uh, this morning, uh, what we're going to be doing is, uh, so last week, we finished up our Reclaimed series. And if you weren't with us during that series, we spent uh, four weeks talking about how we are reclaimed in Christ and how that when we come to Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are restored. We are put back into right standing before God and we are put in a position where we are usable for God and His glory and we are alive in Christ. We are reclaimed. Our life is reclaimed. And so we spent four weeks talking about that aspect of it, how we can live a reclaimed life and reclaimed community. And we talked about the importance of coming together and and realizing we need each other as a church and as a a group of believers to encourage and strengthen one another. Uh, We talked about the idea of a reclaimed testimony, that it does matter what people say and think of you in Christ. We don't live in fear of man. We don't walk on eggshells, obviously. But we better step back and realize that our lives, our actions, our words reflect not just me as an individual, but me as a follower of Christ and reflects on Christ himself. It reflects on the church. So many people nowadays will say things and then say, and I don't care if anybody likes that or not. We've got to be really careful there. Because your testimony matters. People are watching you in your workplace. They're watching you in your home. They're watching you in your community. They're reading what you put on social media. And it's making an impact on people's lives either towards Christ or away from Christ. And we have to be aware of that. Again, we're not perfect. We're not claiming to have all the answers and always do everything right. But we need to be aware and reclaim our testimony and say, no, it matters to me what people think. Do people really know that I'm a follower of Christ by the way I live my life, the things I say, and the way in which I carry myself, and and at work or at home or whatever? Uh, Again, we need to reclaim our testimony. Well, last week we finished up that series talking about a reclaimed marriage, a reclaimed marriage. And we said it was so important to realize and so vital to understand, as we talked about all the aspects of Christian marriage, that God does not ask a husband to fix a wife. And God does not ask the wife to fix the husband. What is Ephesians 5, which we're going to get to in a minute, what does it actually lay out? It says, no, 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 no. Husbands, here's what you can control. 
Here's what you need to be aware of. Wives, here's what you can control. Here's what you need to be aware of. God identifies different roles in the marriage and then says, no, 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 stop trying to make your spouse this or that. Just realize you live for Christ. You do what God asks you to do. You control what you can control. You submit to God that he controls everything. So I'm not worried or fearful of whether my spouse will change this or that behavior or do this or that thing. Nope, I can't control them. I just have to say, God, they're in your hands. I'm going to do what I can do. Help me to be a man or a woman of integrity and character, one that follows you. But when we talked about that last week, we kind of spoke on the part about that, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And it got me thinking this week as we finished up that series and we're kind of in between series right now. So uh, September 8th, we're starting a brand new series, and I, I really, really, really hope you will be here for this. I really hope that you will invite people to this series. Uh, the series is called, I Want to Believe, But. I want to believe, but. I think so many people have a desire to believe in something bigger than themselves. They want to believe in God, but sometimes God doesn't do what we want him to do. Sometimes things in life don't go the way we think they should. Sometimes we pray for God to do something and his answer is completely different than what we thought his answer would be. Sometimes we want to believe what we go through things that really cause us to doubt. Can we really believe when I see this happening in my life or I've seen this happen in my family member's life or these are things that are happening around me? Can I, can I really believe? I want to believe, but... And so what I hope you will do is you will go into your area of influence, work, school, for the young people here, your high school, your junior highs. You will go into your area of influence and say, you know what, we're going to rally around this. We're going to invite people out to hear this. Not because Pastor John has all the answers. And not because North Goodland is the best church in Lapeer County. Uh, by the way, I, I, I love my church. Amen. I hope you love your church. But I want to let you know on a secret here, North Goodland is not the best church in Lapeer County. Because Lapeer County is full of people that are imperfect, and we're all imperfect, and so I don't know that there is a best church in Lapeer County. I don't think we have the best this or that. I think we have an amazing Savior that we get to gather together and worship as the body of Christ. Amen? And so it's not about trying to be better than this or that church. If someone in your workplace says, oh, I go to blah, blah, blah church. By the way, there's a church everywhere, right? Isn't there lots of churches? And last I checked in 2013, there was 76 evangelical churches in Lapeer County. 76 evangelical churches in Lapeer County. Do you know overseas, there are cities with a million plus people that have one Bible preaching church. We had, in 2013, there was roughly uh, right about 89,000 people in Lapeer County. That number's fluctuated and changed some now. But there was 89,000 people in Lapeer County, roughly, 76 evangelical churches in Lapeer County. Man, these churches should be busting at the seams. Each church should be running a lot of people. But see, what happens is we get in this idea that we got to be better than such and such church. Uh, where's that in here? Where does this book say, okay, now, as your vision, go be better than First Baptist Church of blah, blah, blah? doesn't say it. It says we are the church. And our job as a church is to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to plug people into ministry that they can go out and do the same. 
So if somebody in your area of influence says, oh yeah, I go to blah, blah, blah church. Great. I'll be praying for you. Go serve. Go connect. And sometimes we think, oh no, you, you gotta come to my church. You're pumped about your church. I get that. I love my church. But if somebody's actively serving and connected to a church, man, just let them go do their thing. They don't have to come to North Goodland to be in Christ. So when I tell you to invite people out, here's what I want you to do. Now, if you know someone that's looking for a church, somebody that's kind of in between churches, somebody that doesn't know what they're looking for, great, invite them out. But can I encourage you with this? Maybe you would pray, God, give me somebody that I can invite that has no connection to church. Uh, Open a door where I can invite somebody who doesn't even, I don't know, know Christ. And instead of just getting somebody who's bounced church to church to church to church, maybe we can actually say, you know what, let's get this person who's never even been to a church. When I did all this studying years ago and called every one of the 70-some churches and just asked them, how many are you running? Great, thanks. How many are you running? Great, thanks. And I went down this line. Roughly figured out there was somewhere around 12,000 people in those evangelical churches. Now, if you add in churches that I wouldn't consider evangelical, churches that would be not traditionally evangelical, so um, Jehovah's Witness and these kind of groups, Uh, You add in all of that number, um, all of the churches that would be Catholic churches, which again, I'm not knocking Catholic churches, but a Catholic church is not evangelical. So when you add all that in, we get up around 21, 22,000 people in churches. Let's say I was 10,000 off. 89,000, 22,000 in church. And we are so worried about trying to get people from other churches to come to our church at times. Or tell them about where our church is better and our church is better. No, no, no. How about we go reach the ones that aren't even in a church? How about we go reach those ones that are actually the ones that are maybe a little bit harder to love? And say, hey, listen, do you, do you struggle in believing? Why don't you come on out? We, we're doing a series on this. I think it'll really help and encourage you. I want to I let you know, man, maybe September 8th, you will plan on inviting someone out. Someone told me this morning, they said, you know, I invite tons of people to church and hardly nobody comes. I invite all these people to church and nobody comes. They all say they're going to come and they never come. Maybe that happens to you. You can't control that. You just invite out and you invite and you invite. And by the way, it's not even about getting to church. It's about getting to Jesus, really, right? This is just kind of like if you can't have time to share the whole gospel, you're step one, right? You're just kind of real quick trying to build that. Church is like, hey, let's just, would you start here maybe? Then that leads into hopefully an in-depth conversation where you can share the gospel with them. And so as we talk about this idea of I want to believe, but I pray that you would use that as a way to kind of encourage people to come out. I really didn't want to go that far into that, but here we are. Um, and I pray you've been blessed by that. So let's get back to the message today, okay? So it's one of those mornings, guys. It's when I'm just all over the place. Okay, so because we're in between series, uh, I was thinking last week, I was like, man, I love that phrase, and I kind of hate that phrase. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I love it because, man, he loves his church. Amen? Christ loves his church. The reason I struggle with that is because I'm a husband. And I, I've said it before, but an author said it years ago, that every, every day your wife is married to you as a Christian man, she should feel like she's more and more married to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was saying. And I don't know about you as men that are here that are married, but I can tell you as a guy, I don't get that right every time. I think I get that wrong more often than I get it right. But I was thinking through that this week. Man, how does Christ 
love his church. Let's look at the verse here. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's just ask God to lead us through this time this morning. Father, we want to hear from you through your word this morning. We want to know you more intimately today. But Father, more than anything else, we want to understand your love for us. And so I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. I pray you would lead. I pray you would guide and direct. And Lord, I just pray because I know my heart and my mind can do this at times. I pray that we would not just sit through another sermon, that we would make a conscious decision today that I'm going to engage God's word this morning and that I'm going to allow you to engage me. I'm going to allow you to engage my mind, that I'll think on these things. I'll give weight to these things. Lord, I pray that I would engage my emotions subjected to the truth of your word, that truth will lead my emotion, not emotion lead truth. And Father, that you would be glorified in all of this. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, again, we see this directive given to a husband and compares it to Christ's love for the church. And what does it say in verse 25? What is the way in which Christ loved his church? He gave himself for it. He surrendered his personal rights. He surrendered his own life and sacrificed himself for the church. But the love of Christ for his church is more multifaceted than even that. How does even that statement play out in the church? How do we see that manifested in the church? As I was kind of studying through this idea last few weeks, um, and kind of, again, I came across something kind of just haphazardly, really, in my studies. But I found an author who wrote a list Again, it was specifically geared towards husbands, but I'm kind of taking the idea of this list, and we're going to kind of build around it our talk today. Ten ways that Christ loves his church. Ten ways that Christ loves you and I. And I want to walk through some of those this morning. So my goal this morning, because some of you are really good at math and you've already figured out, usually Pastor John has a three-point message. It takes him about 50 minutes. He just got done telling us he has ten points in his message we're going to be here till next Wednesday, okay? It's going to be crazy. I just want to look at a few of these this morning, and then we'll finish up the rest next week. But I want to look at this, and how do we understand Christ's love for his church? Now, again, remember, it, as husbands here, we can connect it to more of a, a call for us to love our wives this way. But don't just put it in that box. Realize he loves his church this much. So as we walk through this, make it personal to you. Say, so God, I want to know how you love me this way. Again, if you are in Christ, you are his church. You are part of his body, his bride, the Bible says. And again, for all the men here, that might be a little weird, right? I am nobody's bride, okay? That is not happening, okay? Unless you're Rick Fox, you probably don't wear dresses, okay? (laughs) To all the visitors here, I apologize for throwing that in your face. Just ask me after and we'll tell you. It's fine. It's all good. Anyway. But whenever you see the bride of Christ being talked about, it always speaks of the church in a collective state. It doesn't refer to an individual as the bride of Christ. So if you're a man here today, don't feel weird about that. 
the authors of Scripture were saying, no, no, collectively the church body is like the bride. And Christ is like the groom in that he did everything for the bride. He, he basically paid the way for the bride to be able to come and be in union with him. And so it's not this idea of, you know, attacking masculinity or whatever. It's a collective idea of what he's speaking of here. So how does he love his church? And again, even men, we think, well, love, that's mushy stuff. No, no, no. Love is not an emotion primarily. Love is not primarily an emotion. Love, in my opinion, is primarily a commitment. And by the way, we need to understand this in our families, in our relationships, in our relationship with Christ. We say, oh, I love you, Lord, but we're not very committed to him, are we, at times? No, no, I love you, Lord, but we don't really follow him when he calls us to do something. I love you, Lord, but I don't really want to want to witness to my neighbor. But I love you, Lord. Man, love is more than an emotion. Now, is an emotion part of love? Of course. There's emotions involved. But primarily, I believe love is really a commitment to someone. It's saying, I'm so committed to you, Lord. I love you so much that I will even step out of my comfort zone. When my emotions are saying, oh, I can't do that, Lord, I'm going to step out because I'm committed to you. I love you. And by the way, why do we even love him? How, is it cap- how am I capable of loving Christ? What does the Bible say? Because he first loved us. So before we can get too arrogant, like, oh, no, I, I love you, Lord, it's pretty humbling to realize that he wouldn't even accept your love except it was for Christ initiating in our lives, seeing us come to know Christ. And now, in the fullness of our salvation, there's, there's no selfishness involved. Now we can say, no, God, I love you. And he says, I accept that because I first loved you. It's an amazing gift, the love of Christ that he has for us and we can express to him. And so let's walk through this just quickly. Just a couple of these this morning. We'll see how long we have to spend together. So 10 Christ-like loves. 10 Christ-like loves. If you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes, uh, because I encourage you to look up these passages on your own, study them, read them, and make sure that God's word is speaking to you, not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. The first Christ-like love I want to look at, and these aren't in any specific order per se, but the first one I want to look at is a pursuing love. A pursuing love. Go over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Again, I'm glad you have your Bibles with you, and I pray that God's word is a blessing to you. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 4. So context, just to give you an idea of what's going on here, Luke chapter 15 is one of the more interesting chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Um, the Gospel of Luke, if you remember our Luke study on Sunday nights, contains more parables than any other gospel. Uh, there's more parables in the Gospel of Luke than any other of the four gospels. Uh, also in chapter 15, we read one of the most famous parables, uh, that being the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And uh, many people think that chapter 15 has three parables in it, and it's the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. Uh, in reality, it's actually one parable with three different aspects. So it's the same parable, three different aspects. And we'll see the repetition here. There's a theme to these three. Uh, something is lost, something is found, and there's rejoicing. That's the basic theme of this parable. Something was lost, something was found, and there's great rejoicing. And so here we see in the very beginning of chapter 15, the first 
aspect of this parable being that of the lost sheep. Uh, verse 4. So Luke 15, 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. So in this parable, the beginning of this amazing parable, Jesus being the greatest teacher we've ever read, we've ever known, uh, can take truth and put it in a story form, heavenly principles, spiritual realities, put them in earthly forms and earthly pictures, and we were able to understand what he's trying to communicate to us. And he's speaking to a group of people that would more than likely understand shepherd, sheep, this idea of losing a sheep, all these things come into play. And so what is Christ demonstrating here? He's demonstrating a pursuing love, a pursuing love. And if, if we're being honest this morning, we need to be very, very thankful that Christ pursued us. Amen. Like there was no way we were going to pursue him. He pursues us. And by the way, he's still pursuing you today. Even in Christ, he's following after you. He's encouraging you. He's strengthening you. And he's desiring you to follow after him. But so often we get wayward, right? Even as a follower of Christ, we start going over here doing our own thing. Oh, that, that pasture looks kind of nice and green. I'll just wander over and have a bite or two. Where'd everybody go? I'm by myself. And we're lost. I'm so thankful that he's not a follower of Christ. Christ doesn't go, man, I'm so tired of coming and getting you. Anyone else glad he's not tired of coming and getting us when we get a little wayward? Our mind gets a little off. We get distracted. Because guess what? We usually turn back to him when? When the wolf shows up. When the enemy comes around. Now we're kind of like, oh man, where's Jesus now? Where's my shepherd? But here Jesus is saying that this one lost sheep is so valuable to him that he pursues after this one. Again, the logical choice if you had to decide between 99 or 1. So I'm going to leave the 99 in the wilderness to chase after the 1. The logical choice, right? The, the wise thing seemingly would be what? I'm going to stick with the 99. I'm going to protect the larger investments. I'm sad that I lost the 1, but if I go after the 1, I might lose the 99. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, 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 no. I will go after even one. Because in God's economy, he values every one of us equally. There's no respecter of persons. He chases after us because of his glory, because of his desire to see us come to repentance. Christ pursues us. He seeks after us. Before we even knew him and after, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he pursues us. I truly believe that he seeks after those that do not know him until the day that they breathe their last breath. I believe Christ seeks after those who don't know him until the day they breathe their last breath. He is gracious and always desiring to give repentance and redemption. And there is no place a sinner on this planet can go 
There is no distance too great that he won't cover that distance and chase them down and say, listen, I'm offering you this. And by the way, how does Christ pursue a sinner in the world today? He's not here physically. So who's the ones pursuing these sinners on behalf of Christ? His church. He says, man, I chased after you when you were lost. All I'm asking you to do is just go after them that are lost. And what do we do when we find them? We don't give them our solution or our answers. We say, man, there is one who came and died and rose again. And if you would receive him, you can be saved from your sin. Christ's love is a pursuing love. And again, I'm so thankful that he doesn't just say, okay, now you're saved. Good luck. Have fun. He continually walks with us and encourages us in the way. So it's a pursuing love. Secondly and quickly, it's a stubborn love. It's a stubborn love. Go over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28. We read here what we've called the Great Commission. Uh, There's two greats, if you will, in understanding these things. There's the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Uh, The Great Commandment is when Jesus was asked, what's the most important law? What's the most vital law? What's the law we should never break? They wanted an out to be able to do some things they shouldn't do and still be able to look righteous and religious. So Jesus said, there's really only one way to say this. Love the Lord your God with all of you, with your heart, mind, body, and soul, uh, with all of you, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. And then here in Matthew 28, we read the great commission. Look at verse 20. We're not going to read 19, which is normally there, but look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We should collectively say amen to that reality in our lives today. That lo, I am with you, you can say it, always. I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Some translations would say age. The idea is that he is with us, and we are with him in Christ. It is a stubborn love. In Christ, we have a guarantee from his own words that he will be with us always, even unto the end of the world. And I want you to think about this this morning, because we think, why would he commit that to me? I know me. I stumble. I fall. The truth is that this is a commitment to you and I, yes, but really it is a commitment to himself. It's a commitment to himself. Christ will always be faithful to his own purpose. And because he has started a work in you, he will not quit on you halfway. He will perfect or complete that work. And it's a stubborn love. He tells the disciples, hey, when you're out doing this, when you're making disciples, when you're preaching the gospel to all areas of the globe, when you're out in these places where nobody else wants to be, when you're in the middle of a jungle or the middle of North Branch, whatever, wherever you are, where you find yourself as a follower of Christ, he says, man, do you know that how scary it is to go into unknown areas and preach the gospel? And what does he say? We will go ahead and read it because you might as well look there. He says this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach all nations. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 talks about you'll start in Jerusalem and then you'll go out to Judea and then Samaria and then what? Unto the uttermost parts of the world or the earth. 
And do you know how crazy it is to think that believers were called to reach all nations? And that word nations there doesn't mean nation like we think of. It doesn't mean like Italy or Argentina or those type of names. It's more depicted as, as ethnic groups, ethnic family groups, people groups. So this means in areas like the Philippines where there's so many islands and so many different people groups, each one of those individual people groups matters to God. He says, no, I want you to go to all of them. I want them all to know my salvation. I want them all to know my gospel. And so how in the world did these 11, then 12 again, in the book of Acts, we read about the 12th being one that replaces Judas. How did these 12, then we read in the upper room, there's roughly probably 110. Then there's a few thousand. How did this 2,000 years later become something that covers the world, where, where you can go places all the world and find believers who believe just like you? Who, who read the same New Testament just like you, who worship the same Savior just as you. How is that even possible? Because he says, I am with you. I will go with you. You don't need to fear. So let's do this thing. And you know the difference between sometimes when God works in my life and tries to lead me to share faith with someone and these in the early church? They actually believe what Jesus said here. So they actually, it's crazy. I mean, I know it's so insane. When Jesus said, I'm with you always, they believe that. And they didn't just believe it in the upper room. Because let me, let me be real for a second here. When these guys get in the upper room and they're all praying together, right? And they know that Jesus has ascended and they know that he's going to heaven. Man, they're excited. They're fired up. It'd be really easy to stay in the upper room, right? Let's be real. Wouldn't it be easy to just hang out in the upper room? Why do you even go out to this crazy society and these Romans and all this nutty stuff going on? Man, it's just so much easier. Let's just hang out in the upper room. We'll just do our thing. We'll pray. We'll sing together. We'll talk about what Jesus told us. We'll feel really good about ourselves. We'll look spiritual because we're coming together and praying together. But man, let's not really go out and do all of what he said. That's so hard to do what he actually said. Let's just hang out in the upper room. But I'm so thankful that they actually believed not just some of what Jesus said. They believed all of what Jesus said. And they said, man, we, we can't hold this thing in. Man, we can't just sit on our hands here. Guys, we got to do something about this. And you know where their confidence came from? Not their ability in their preaching. Not their ability to communicate. I'm all for getting better in communication. I'm all for strategies to share the gospel. There's nothing wrong with those things. When I was in high school, Romans Road was the way. Like, if you talk about leading someone to Christ, and they'll ask you, did you use Romans Road? Because you got to use Romans Road. That's how they get there. There's no other way. Then there was debate over, do you use Romans 10, 9 through 10? Do you use that in there with 10, 13? Or do you just go to 13? Because that's, you know, if you're a conservative conservative, you'll use 9 through 13, you know. But if you're one of those liberals, you'll just go to 10, 13. That's not really true. That was just kind of an exaggeration. But I'm all for those strategies. I remember we used to do a soul-winning class. Years ago, we did a soul-winning class. 13 weeks, I think this thing was. 13 weeks, one-hour course. And they, used to, they started doing it. And this is, if, if you're here and you did this course, it was, it was good course. Nothing wrong with it. Hear me now. There's nothing wrong with this stuff. But we used to do what was called like Monday night visitation. Okay, so every Monday night we'd show up at the church at 6.30 and we'd go visit, just door knock. You want to talk about when I was claiming this promise that he's always with me. 
Walk up some random person's door, knocking on the door at 7 o'clock at night, 6 o'clock at night. In this area, you might get shot, okay? I mean, I'm just saying. I'm not trying to point fingers, but, you know, some people out here don't like it. When they're, when, when they're back and they're, they're back 40 and you come driving back there, they're not expecting you. So it gets a little heated at times. There was a few people I was like, I'm just going to go because there's some camouflage things around. And I see some signs around. I'm just going to back up in Jesus' name and pray for you from the road. Because I want to live today. Amen. Um, But I remember this class. And now the whole point of the class is to teach us basic ways to to get someone from a basic conversation to sharing Christ to seeing them come to know Christ. And I had taken the class a few times before we took it. And I remember I was only probably about 17, 18 years old. And I was coming out to the church and... He was a little older. He was more like 19 or 20. And I was coming out on visitation, and I get here at 6.30, and the class ended at 6.15. Now, the reason for this is that those that were doing the class figured, well, end the class at 6.15, then those that are in the class will what? Go out on visitation. I mean, that makes sense. Can I tell you something that just still to this day, it just, I can't quite connect the two dots. In all 13 weeks, not one person left that class and went on visitation. In all 13 weeks, every one of those people took the class and then went home. Now you might say, oh, pastor, come on. Maybe they were using it during the week. I'm sure they were. That's great. But it just stuck with me that somehow we thought, I'm taking this class so I don't have to go out and do this because I'm in the class. I don't have to go out and make disciples because, I mean, I'm, I'm living for Christ with my life. I don't have to actually say anything. I'm just lifestyle evangelism. I go to church and I pray for them. And so that's really all I can do, all I really need to do. And my question was back to you, man, that's, that's, and again, it's not like you have to check these boxes. So don't think legalism. Don't think that. I'm just saying, think it through. Do we really believe what Jesus actually said? Or do we put things in that place to make ourselves feel better so we don't actually have to do what he said? We use these other things to kind of compensates for what he's really calling me to do. And these guys, apparently, in Matthew chapter 28, not perfectly, by the way, uh, Peter still had to battle with some prejudices, right? It wasn't until Acts chapter 10 that he finally realized, oh, I can go to these guys, and I don't have to be someone else. Uh, God had to break him of that. But Peter was the one that stood on the day of Pentecost, and thousands got saved. He wasn't perfect, But he just believed what Jesus said and said, I'll go do what Jesus said. And so my point is this. If Jesus is stubborn for us and his love is stubborn for us, maybe we need to have a stubborn love for someone else and put Jesus' words into practice. Let's look at one more this morning before we get ready to, to close. So we see that it's a stubborn love. It's a pursuing love. Thirdly, it's a hopeful love. It's a hopeful love. You see, because it's a stubborn love, it's a hopeful love for us. Romans 8.30. I did not tell Greg to read that, but I'm still thankful he did. Let's go back just quickly and look at that again. He read the majority of the passage. We're just going to look at verse 30. Uh, Can I just tell you, as soon as he said Romans 8.30, I literally thought, God, you are so awesome. Only God can orchestrate things in that way to where God aligns these things together and we sing about the love of Christ for us. And I love what Greg said, because his love for us is fierce, 
And because we can respond to that love by faith receiving Christ, we can now build our life on this love. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Then we get into what Greg was talking about there when he gets, talks about the idea of this love. Let me ask you a question. What tense are those things written in verse 30? He says, those, uh, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, because Christ is stubborn and because he is committed to himself and the purposes and the will of God, we can have a hope that our salvation is secure and strong. He doesn't say we will be justified or we will be glorified one day. He says we already are those things in Christ. Now, let's be honest. One day I'll leave this physical body, I'll stand before him, and I will be glorified. I will be finally saved, if you say it that way. But from God's point of view, because he is committed to you, because he loves you that much, because he's committed to his own purpose and will, it's a done deal. There's no wondering. There's no worrying. Will I get there one day? You ever share Christ with somebody or you want to share Christ and you'll start off by saying, let me ask you a question. Do you know where you'll go when you die? And they'll say something like this. Well, I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And then you say, are you sure about that? Well, I hope so. I hope so. What are they saying? I hope I've done enough good. I hope I've done enough things. I hope I've been a good enough person. Man, we don't hope as though we wish on a star. Our hope is based in a guarantee, a stubborn love from Christ to us, his church, and we are secure and we are strong on that love. We are already these things. One writer said it this way. We're talking about this idea of glorification in this verse. He says this, glorification, strictly the glorifying of the Christian, awaits him in the future. But the apostle regards all these different acts as focused together as it were on a single point in the past. The apostle regards all these different acts as focused together as it were on a single point in the past. Because Christ died on the cross, because he was buried, because he rose again, because you've put your faith and trust in Christ, that turning point changed not only your life on earth, it changed your eternity. And now you don't wander and hope, maybe, maybe I'll get it. No, no, no. His love for you is so stubborn, it creates a hopeful love. We are hopeful to him, so we are committed to him. We have a hope and a guarantee because he pursued you, because he was stubborn and he loved you when no one else could. And because he did those things and died for you and rose again and you put your faith and trust in him, he says, no, no, now you have a guarantee. You are justified right now. Now, let's be honest. I don't always feel very justified. Sometimes the enemy reminds me of some things that I used to do. Reminds me of some temptations that we all still battle with. And I don't always feel these things. I don't feel hopeful, but I'm so thankful that the Word of God says, man, when your feelings say one thing, the Word of God can say another. The Word of God can, can overcome those emotions, those doubts, those concerns. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Because we've got so much more to cover, we're going to kind of put a, a pin in this right now. We're just going to pause right here. 
But as we do that, I want you to do this during the invitation today. We're going to give you a chance to respond. Invitation is, is just simple. The band's going to come or there's going to be some music. You're going to have a chance to come and either bend a knee here and pray or there in your seats and pray and ask God to work in your life. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think on this this morning. I want you, number one, have you stopped and thanked him, thanked him for his love for you? I know we say we're thankful for our salvation, but have you stopped and said, God, I'm thankful that you loved me when I was unlovable? Maybe you would come in and say that prayer and just kind of spend some time worshiping him that way. Or maybe you would come and say, God, you know what? I see your love as a commitment to me. I'm still thankful that you're committed to me, not because of something great or good in me, but because of something great and good in you. And you to be glorified. What what does the Bible say? That your grace would be on display to all ages. I want your grace and your love to be on display in my life, that other people will see a difference in me, that your stubborn and pursuing and hopeful love will create in me a different way of thinking because I want to be pursuing those in my area of influence that don't know Christ. I want to be stubborn in my love for others this week. Doesn't mean we nag people. Doesn't mean we, we get our Bibles out and we start just smacking them with it. Get saved! Get saved! Okay, no, no, no. Okay? It's a different kind of expression of love. No, no, it means we're, we're consistent. We're just there. And when they sin, we say, man, I'm, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? It doesn't mean we condone their sin. God forbid we would condone open rebellious, unrepentant sin. We will never and should never do that. We don't have to hold their hand as they're sinning, but we can just say, you know what? In the face of that, I just want you to know, I love you. Not because of what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. I don't agree with what you're doing, but I'm stubborn in my love for you. What does Romans 5, 8 tell us? But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet Christ died for you. Christ died for me. I was unlovable, and he was stubborn, and he pursued me. So maybe you would come this morning and say, Lord, help me to be stubborn in my love for someone that you've put in my life, family member, friend, coworker. I want to pursue them. I want to be stubborn in my love for them, and I want to make sure that it's not based in me, but I want them to know that they can have a hope that goes beyond this physical world. And this stuff we have today is so fleeting. We build our lives on sand when we build it on ourselves and our own kingdoms. We can sit back at the end of our life and just applaud ourselves. Look at all that I've amassed. Look at all the wealth. Look at all the success. And not a one of it is going with you. None of it is going with you. But man, what you leave behind for Christ and the hope you have in what's to come, that's what matters. And so maybe you'd come this morning Maybe as a husband and wife, maybe as an individual, maybe as a family, uh, whatever. Maybe you want to come and just say, God, help me to be stubborn this week and help me to be based on a hope that is in you, not in me. Would you bow your heads with me as we have a moment of prayer? Father, I pray that as we just spent some time this morning, really simple talk this morning. Lord, nothing... Nothing hugely complicated about today's message. I just pray that we would know that your love for us is a firm love. Lord, you pursued us. 
You were stubborn in your love towards us. And because we received your love, your gift of salvation, now we have a hope and a guarantee. And I pray, Lord, that above all things, we would rest in that hope today to know that no matter what happens around us, that in Christ we are secure and we can trust. Father, I pray that as we spend some time responding this morning, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. I pray that you would lead us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone in this room right now that has not personally received you as their Savior, that they would not sing one word, that they would not do one thing before they, in their hearts, acknowledge their sin, turn from that, repent of their sin, meaning just, I'm going to change my thinking on this. I used to think it was okay. Now I'm going to say, no, it's, it's sin. It's wrong. Realize their need for a Savior. Confess their belief in you, receiving your gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, and knowing that they are saved. So Lord, I pray that wherever someone is this morning, whether they know you as Savior or don't, that you would work in their life and intervene in their life right now. But for the believer today, Lord, for the Christian, Lord, I pray that we would be so joyful and excited because you love us. May it not be something we hear so much that we just grow dull of hearing. And may we respond, whether they're in their seats, Lord, or here at the altar, may we just, as a church, praise you for your love. It pursued, it was stubborn, and it's given us a hope. And we rest in that hope today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we respond to him this morning? Whatever it is that God is doing, would you respond? And just do what God is calling you to do. Pray. There in your seats here. Thank him for his love today.